0: Would you pray with me? God, we're so grateful that you're a God who is on the move, who is working, who is transforming, who's changing, who's calling young people, who's calling older people into a deeper commitment of faith, God. And we desire, Lord, that the fruit of that faith would be made evident in our lives and in the life of our church. We too recognize, God, that baptism and some of these smaller decisions that we've made along the way are just one step in moving towards Jesus and this morning God we want to take another step and so as we hear from your word this morning we pray God that it would be shaping and forming that your presence here with us would make us more like Christ that we would be true disciples of Jesus and so bless the preaching of your word it's for your glory God It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Well, uh, this year, I've been getting recently several messages on Instagram and on my phone from some high school boys at San Marcos High School asking if I was going to coach soccer again this year. Last season was my first season coaching the freshman boys soccer team at San Marcos. Go Royals. Royal pride. Yes, it's in my blood now. That is where my loyalties lie, and I am super excited uh, about this upcoming year, uh, and and coaching sports for me have been a tremendous part of my life growing up as a tremendous uh, community and and tool that was really used to to put significant friendships and relationships in my life, and so I love just being a part of team sports in whatever capacity that it is, Um, when I was in college, actually, I played soccer all the way from, I believe, age seven through college, like age 21 or so. Um, and the college soccer season is much different than the high school season. The high school season, you just have these few months that you're, you're training and you're competing and then it's pretty much done until the following season comes up. But in college, you're, you're playing a year-round sport. Is that you have in season and you have out of season. In season, you have your games, your training, and and all of that stuff. You're pursuing a national title, yada yada yada. And the off season is filled with just more training, just a different kind. It's the weightlifting, it's the running, it's working on your small skills, you know, technique and all this kind of stuff. But in college. Um, the, the coaches are limited in the out-of-season of how much coaching they're allowed to do. They can only come to so many practices. They can only ha- host so many trainings. They can only allow, force us to play in so many scrimmages in the off-season uh, because, you know, coaches are insane. I know this because I am one. And so they try and reduce the, the load that collegiate athletes have by reducing the amount of time coaches have with their athlete's And so what we would do in the off-season in college is we would, as a team, get together and we'd train and we'd work out on our own in addition to the things that the coach required of us because we sought excellence. We sought to be better. And in the spring every year, we would go to a a tournament in Indiana. I went to school in Ohio. So we would drive over to Indiana, and there was a school that hosted this seven-on-seven tournament uh, with a lot of different colleges and no coaches. And so it was organized because coaches couldn't be a part of what was going on at that point in the offseason. And so we would go and we'd divide into a couple of different teams. And, and so we had, like, not necessarily our A team and our B team, but we would split up into a couple different squads, and, and we would do all the coaching. We'd put the lineups together. We'd make decisions on the substitutes and all that kind of stuff. Well, this one year, I believe it was the, the, the spring of my junior year of college, we are at this tournament, and the team that I was playing on, that year, we had won our first two games, and so we're doing well, and we're thinking, we're going to, we're crushing this thing, you know, like, we're so good, and so we get into our third game, and early on in the game, the, our opponents scored a goal on us, and then shortly thereafter, they scored a second goal, and shortly thereafter, they scored a third goal, and shortly thereafter, they scored a fourth goal. And it was so defeating. And if you've ever played sports or you've ever been involved with any sort of competition, you know the frustration that begins to build after each succeeding goal. And I remember after that fourth goal, um, we had this guy on our team, Dan, who is the most positive, encouraging guy that I've ever met in my whole life, is as we're, we're... taking the ball out of the net, walking it to half field. He's doing that whole rah-rah, like, it's okay, guys. We got this. We can do this. And I was actually not in the game at the time. I'm standing on the sideline, and I vividly remember yelling at him, Seifert. That was Dan's last name. When you're really mad, you use his last name, you know? I'm like, Seifert, Wipe that smile off your face. We didn't come all the way to Indiana to get our butts kicked. You know? And I just, I just unloaded on him because I was just so frustrated about his attitude. How many of you can relate to maybe a little bit or maybe it's just me? But I can recall all throughout my collegiate experience those tense moments where things weren't going the direction that we wanted them to as a team. And what begins to happen is frustration builds As the challenges seem greater and greater, people begin sniping at each other. This goal is your fault. Why aren't you covering your man? You should be covering the weak, you know, all of those things. And I remember times when after games or after a week of kind of tense moments with one another, teammates would have to go and apologize, like, hey, man, I'm so sorry. I just caught caught up in the emotions of what was going on. You see, when conflict arises or difficult circumstances arise, One of the most vulnerable places of our lives are our relationships, right? As soon as conflict arises, as soon as difficult circumstances arise, what often feels the brunt or the weight of that conflict are our relationships. And this isn't true just of our sports teams. It's true of life, right? And to be blunt, most of us are not naturally very good at navigating conflict in a healthy way. Uh, the the other day, I think it was maybe it was this week. I had a a good friend of ours in town. He and his wife have a two month old, and uh, she's been doing really well, sleeping the whole nine yards, yada yada yada. And they had started this week construction at their apartment complex, so from eight in the morning all the way till you know early evening, late afternoon, they're just banging going on, and the baby just can't sleep during the day because of the noise that is being created by the construction. And so I got this text message on Tuesday, or maybe it was Wednesday, from my friend, and he, it just said, hey, man, like, my wife just needs a break. The baby is crying nonstop. Can I just come over with baby and just hang out for a few hours to give her some peace of mind, some rest so that she might catch a little nap? And so, you know, he brought her over and I'm holding the baby and she's just crying her little head off. I'm like, it's so hard to be a baby, I know. But but when there's conflict, right? Like our natural inclination is to cry. Nobody had to teach that baby, like, just be upset. Just cry your little head off. Just make everybody around you miserable because there's a challenging, right? Like, this isn't taught to us. It is sort of the default mode that when things aren't going our way, that we just make everybody else around us a little bit miserable, right? I mean, how many times have you been in that conversation with your spouse, with your husband or your wife, where things aren't going way your financially or something, some sort of conflict is going on with a decision that needs to be made and suddenly this small thing has begun to build and now you are fighting with one another, finger pointing your spouse as the person who's responsible for what's going on. How many times with your kids have you been through that sort of rough patch where things, they're just not listening? They're not going the direction, they're not making wise decisions and you just feel like this trust, this relationship is just being broken here. They don't trust you, you don't trust them and things aren't just going your way. Or how many of you have a boss that you just have a difficult time getting along with or a colleague that when things go awry, when conflict arises, that relationship becomes poisoned. Or for our students, you have a teacher, right? When things aren't going well in the classroom, (laughs) And some kid is acting out, and suddenly, the teacher's just mad at everyone, right? Because when conflict arises, the thing that kind of carries the weight of all of that conflict are oftentimes our relationships. And you don't have to live long, right, to know that conflict, that trouble, that hardship is just a natural part of life. In fact, Jesus teaches in John chapter 16, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have hardship. You will have difficult things happen. You will have trials. Things that are guaranteed in this life, death, taxes, and trouble are coming our way. And it's not the most encouraging thing that Jesus ever taught, but it's a true thing that Jesus has taught. And the good news is this, that Jesus didn't just recognize that we were going to face difficult circumstances, but through his word, we are given some direction and advice as to how we might respond when we face trouble, how we might respond when we face conflict, how we might respond when difficult circumstances arise and not allow our relationships to suffer when they do. This teaching series that we've been going through stronger has been focused in on Ephesians chapter 6, the sort of latter portion of the book or the letter of Ephesians and in the book, Paul teaches, starting in verse 10, where we've been looking, is that there is evil that is in the world that has broken the world, that is causing the world to suffer, that is causing conflict, that is causing things to not go the direction that God had naturally intended them. And we all know this to be true, right? It doesn't take long for me. On my Twitter feed to just scroll through or for you to watch the news and recognize that there is evil and brokenness that exists in the world. And as a part of God's creation, we and our relationships are not just collateral damage of the evil that goes on around us. But what Paul teaches in Ephesians 6, we are targets of evil, is that Satan's plan is to destroy all of what God had created to destroy all the goodness that creation was infused with. And we, we, many of us, we don't need to look long in our personal histories, right, in our families, in broken friendships, or in our workplaces to recognize that, that there is evil that is tearing apart people, that is divisive, that is breaking relationships. And the only one that is happy about this sort of conflict, about these sort of circumstances, the result is Satan himself. And this has long been his M.O., right, in Scripture, is that evil that he is targeting on God's creation breaks and separates people's relationships. It starts in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, and what's the first thing that happens when they have this conversation with God afterwards? The woman made me do it, right? She's over there, it wasn't me. And suddenly this bond of marriage is very much... Not a bond of marriage, to say the least, right? Or their kids, Cain and Abel. What is the thing that as evil creeps into that relationship and there's this jealousy that goes on and brother turns against brother? Or Abraham and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his 11 brothers, Jesus and Judas. We can go throughout the scriptures and recognize that when evil is targeting the people of God, one of the places it, it, it loves to target is our relationships, And so how do we protect ourselves? How do we protect our marriages? How do we protect our families? How do we protect our friendships? How do we protect our church from the attacks of the enemy? Is there anything that we can do to guard ourselves because conflict is going to rise? How can we guard ourselves and our lives from these divisive attacks of the enemy? And God in his providence and his mercy and his grace has provided us a spiritual tool that we can use to guard these relationships in our lives. And it's exactly what the third piece of armor that we've been going through, the armor of God that we've been talking about. Throughout the letter, Paul's been talking about putting on the armor of God to so that Christians might be able to stand firm in the midst of attack. And the one that allows us to not allow our relationships to be fragmented and broken in the midst of attacks of the enemy is this third piece of armor. I think I have this up on the screen. Paul writes that we need to have our feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, or that's the NIV translation, the NLT translation, for shoes put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at how putting on the shoes of Or I like the NIV translation, honestly, a little bit better. Being fitted with the readiness, having our feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace can guard our relationships from bearing the brunt and the weight of the attacks of the enemy. But in order for us to understand how we are to have our feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, we have to have a clear understanding of what the gospel actually is, right? It's this critical word that we need to understand in order to faithfully obey and step into this counsel that Paul gives us in Ephesians. see, the gospel is this news, it's this story that there's an infinite, all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, almighty God who created all things for his glory, and that when he created all things, he infused it with order, with moral order, with purpose, and all of these things work together for his glory. But you and I and all people in human history have at one point or another, or currently are, deciding that our way is better than God's way, that our order is better than God's order, and so we subvert his rule over our lives and we question his authority over us. This is what we call in the church as sin, is working against the purposes and order of God and creation. And this decision, because we're not all loving, because we're not all knowing, because we're not all powerful, because we are not God, this decision to try and rule our own lives has and continues to result in great conflict and nothing less than broken relationships between us and God and between us and one another. And it's into this circumstance, into this conflict of relationships, that we hear the familiar words of Scripture, probably the most famous words uh, of Scripture in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. You see, though God did nothing wrong, though God was always trying to have our best interests in mind, God is the one who gives something to make peace in these relationships, is that God gives his son. He doesn't demand anything from people. He doesn't demand anything from creation. It's your fault, therefore you need to fix it, is that God takes the initiative to send his son to make peace with the world. He sends Jesus, who the scriptures call the Prince of Peace, into the world to defeat evil on the cross. He was killed to pay for the consequences of sin, and God raised him from the dead. And that same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in all those who believe in him. That is the gospel. This is a central truth and teaching and message of the Christian faith that there is a God who is seeking peace with creation and not just between himself and creation, but he's seeking peace that creation might have peace. There's this vertical dimension between us and God, but he's also seeking peace in this horizontal dimension as well, so that we might have peace with one another. You see, God reveals himself in the gospel as the ultimate conflict resolver, as the ultimate relationship mender. He reveals himself as a peacemaker in the world. And this is the orientation that all of God's people are to have, to be peacemakers, even when it's not your fault. (laughs) One of the things that I've learned uh, about myself over the past year, for those who don't know, I've, my wife and I, we've been married a little over a year now, and you learn so much about them, se- them, your spouse, and yourself in marriage, which is really, really great and beautiful and wonderful. I don't say that in like making fun of it at all. It's really wonderful. But one of the things that I've learned is that uh, I'm not the greatest, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I should confess this, at resolving conflict is that I have found that in my marriage, I am the one who when conflict arises, I become so focused on the conflict and the problem and what's creating the problem and what's adding to the problem and actually what's like the source of the problem. And so when Paige and I are having a conversation trying to work something out, you know, I don't know if you're like this, maybe it's just me. we're talking and it's like snowballing out of control as I'm like, well, this is the problem of what's going on. And then this is what you're doing to contribute to that. And then this is this other dynamic that's going on. And all I do is just, I get so worked up in identifying the reasons that there's conflict and it becomes, it creates this situation where we actually can't move forward like at all. And so Paige will usually be like, okay, I'm going to go sit in the other room when you're in like a one-bedroom apart, it's like, I'm going to the bedroom, and you're going to sit right there, right? So there's not a lot of places to get away. And, and so this is usually how conflict gets resolved in our household. We're working on it. But, but later, after some moments when kind of emotions are brought down, uh, Paige is usually the one who initiates sort of peaceful resolve, where she comes back into the room, and she's just like, we're, we're on the same team here. Like, we, we, are, we want the same thing, you know? We're on the same side. I'm sorry for this part that I played. You know, this, maybe we can go forward from here. And, and it's this sign that, that one, I married a, a wonderful, godly woman, is that a person who is oriented towards seeking peace is a woman who's been shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're the best, I love you, right? <laughs> <laughs> the best. Um, And so how do we ready ourselves? How do we allow our lives to be so shaped by the gospel that in the midst of difficult circumstances, we maintain a sense of peace and an orientation towards seeking peace? And I think, like, right as the, if you put that back up there, Max, that first verse, when he says, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared is that the thing that we need to do in fitting our, our shoes or fitting our feet with the readiness of the gospel is we have to be ready. This isn't something that when conflict arises, then suddenly we decide, like, oh, like, I need to put on my shoes real quick. One of the things that drives me crazy about coaching freshman boys is their forgetfulness. Holy smokes. Every game that we had this past year, coach, I brought the wrong uniform. Coach, I brought the wrong shorts. Coach, I brought the wrong socks. Coach, I don't have socks. I don't have shin guards. I have one shin guard. There's one game that we went to and this guy was like one of my players was like he had one cleat. And so he was asking everybody else on the team like, "Do you have an extra cleat?" And so before the game, I'm giving my little pre-game talk and I'm looking down at his feet and he has like a size 9 and a size 12. I'm like, "What?" are we doing here? (laughs) And they're not the same shoe. Is that we, like any good athlete, we need to be ready before we step into the game. And so how do we prepare ourselves? How do we ready ourselves so that when conflict emerges, when trouble comes our way, that we can navigate it with the gospel of peace? I think Paul gives us a good indication, a good formula to start from in Philippians chapter four. If you put up that next verse, Max. Philippians four, he writes this at the end of this letter. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love reading Paul's letters in the New Testament. Uh, We often refer to them as like the book of Philippians or the book of Ephesians, but they're not books at all. It is that actually uh, Paul isn't writing these documents that we know as the New Testament as his letters. Uh, so that we can develop systematic theologies or some sort of religious dogma, is that as we read Paul's letters in the New Testament, we recognize and we realize that Paul is a real person writing to real churches that are con- contain real people who are facing real circumstances, and he's giving real practical advice of how it is they ought to live. And in this particular letter in Philippians what we know about the situation that paul is facing and what the philippian the church in philippi is facing is that there's a lot of conflict the church is in crisis mode earlier in the letter we discover that the church is actually going through a church divide a church split there's just full on we don't know what what the reason was but the church is in crisis but the church is in crisis not by what's going on inside the church, but we also discover in the letter that there's opposition from outside the church who is persecuting the church. Things are not going well for the church in Philippi when they receive this letter. But not only is the church in crisis, Paul himself is in crisis. Paul pens this letter from prison. <laughs> he has been imprisoned for preaching of the gospel. And so we have a penned letter written in prison Delivered to a church that is in crisis. How do you navigate this circumstance and this situation? And the end of this letter really gives us a summary of all that came before it. And I, I want to just point our attention to two encouragements that Paul gives to the church. Both to ready themselves for the conflict that is at hand and will continue to go on. Is he starts his remarks with this. Rejoice. Rejoice in what? (laughs) Rejoice in the fact that you're not yet in prison, (laughs) that there are things that can actually go worse, right? No, rejoice in the Lord, always. And if that wasn't clear enough, (laughs) right, I will say it again, rejoice. See, rejoicing in the Lord is a rejoicing in the gospel, is rejoicing in what God has accomplished already through the person of Jesus And the encouragement for Paul to rejoice is an encouragement because when we rejoice, we become shaped and formed in that rejoicing. Does that make sense? Is that what we're rejoicing begins to shape and influence us. Is that as we rejoice in the peacemaking work of God through Christ, so we too become peacemaking type of people in the world. What we worship and what we rejoice in shapes our hearts and our minds and our character. And rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in the gospel, naturally orients us towards peacefulness in the midst of difficult circumstances. But there's this second encouragement I want you to take notice of in verse 6 as well. He writes this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, present your requests to God. One of the things that I I think sometimes we, we miss out on is that the gospel message is that those who believe in Jesus are empowered with the same power that brought Christ back from the dead. Is that when we believe in the gospel? We have access to divine resources that we would not have otherwise. And an orientation toward prayer, a posture of prayer, gives us access to those resources in times of struggle and conflict. Is that this God who is peacemaking has all of the power, right? He has all of the resources that we need to resolve conflict, to walk peaceably, even though everything around us is swirling and chaotic. And it's through the act of prayer that we recognize we don't lean on our own power, but we lean on the power of the one who raised Christ from the dead. Rejoice and pray. Rejoicing and praying readies us to be people of peace in what is sometimes a chaotic and broken world but i want to point out this third point if you go back one slide max real quick is that rejoicing and praying kind of directs us and empowers us to fulfill this other this third command that paul gives in this letter he says let your gentleness be evident to all let your gentleness be ready to all. Uh, I was at, a couple of weeks ago, some of you may or may not know this, a couple of weeks ago I spoke at a junior high summer camp, and it was a really interesting experience. As a SoCal district. It was a, a really a great time. And there is this one evening, it was our Wednesday evening, in which we were talking about... Uh, allowing God to free us from the burdens that we carry around. And so the way that this night worked out is we had our worship service and I spoke. And then afterwards, kids were instructed and encouraged to go spend just 20 minutes of silence. It was crazy. There was like junior hires who spent 20 minutes of silence. Can you believe that? 200 of them, they actually did it. It blew my mind. And um, part of that was to allow them to think about what are the things that burden you in your life? Things that you might be doing yourself, things that might be happening to you in your life. What are those burdens that you're just carrying and walking around with? And it just, if you didn't know, junior hires, there's some of them that, you know, they're just sort of that like, oh, everything's great. And there's some that just live utterly broken lives. That just you would never believe that 12 year olds have to deal with some of the circumstances that they do and after that time of silence they all came back into the chapel area and there were these three stations that kids were able to kind of respond physically to what it was that they were hearing what it was that god was stirring in their hearts and one of those stations um, was this they had built at the camp this sort of just frame And they had twine hanging down from it. And the kids could go to the station and take burlap, like strips of burlap, and write the things that were burdening them. And they would tie that burlap onto the twine. Burlap, in the scriptural sense, was a signal of mourning or of sadness. People would put on burlap or sackcloth, we might hear it in scriptures, uh, to indicate that things aren't going well. And so they would write whatever was burdening them and they would tie it on the twine and it just hung there and watching 200 kids or however many kids interacted with a station and seeing all these things that were burdening kids was just like oh my goodness there's a lot of brokenness in the world but after they did that after they did that they were encouraged to take a grape and to eat a, a grape as a signal that even in the midst of all that burdens us even in the midst of all of the conflict, even in the midst of all of these things that aren't going our way, God is still good, and we can still step into the sweetness of the life that he has for us. You see, this this third command, this third encouragement that Paul gives here, let your gentleness be evident to all, is stepping into that kind of life, stepping into the life that God has ordered and created all things to actually have, and what happens when God's people actually obey the things that, that God instructs through his word is it looks different than the rest of the world. I mean, you can just, just know what's going on in like our political atmosphere, right? It's like when there's conflict, when there's turmoil, everything that happens thereafter is not remotely close to being gentle, Right? It's just crazy that when conflict happens, how there's no peace, how there's no gentleness in interactions with one another. But when God's people are fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, through our rejoicing and through our praying, when those times, when those troubles come our way, we can be gentle and allow that to be evident to all. And it's a testimony of our God when we live in this manner. We are embarking on a new school year. Uh, my Sunday school class this morning was so lethargic, oh my goodness. And uh, usually, you know, they're so excited to read the Bible, but they came in, and yeah, Max was. Oh, okay. Sorry, Max. You were very excited and engaging. Um, but Greg made the offhand comment like, well, you know, school's starting in a week, you know? And so I was like, that's true. That's true. Summer's coming to an end. And you will be in all of your classes and doing homework here in just about eight days. Um, And we, we, as we step into this new school year, as we step into this new year, we may not know everything that is going to be coming our way, right? Think back 365 days ago. Think about all the things that have happened in the life of our church over the past year. Some of them were wonderful. And some of them were, were just highs, right? Those moments where you just, I'm going to take this memory and cherish that for the rest of my life. But for some of us, there were, oh boy, some difficult times. And Jesus wasn't kidding when he said that in this world you will have trouble. And the next 365 days that, that we're moving from here are guaranteed to have seasons and moments and weeks and days and maybe months, maybe it'll be a year of trouble and conflict and difficulty. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, are your feet readyed with the gospel of peace? Will you make a commitment this year in your life to rejoicing, to showing up to church every single week and worshiping this God of peace so that you might have an orientation of peace in the world? Will you commit yourself to prayer, to giving all, presenting all of your requests in every situation before God, acknowledging that you need to lean into his power, you need to lean into his grace, you need to put on his armor to guard your heart and your mind so that when challenges come your way, you will be able to respond with this peace of God that transcends all understanding. See, we've all seen Christians, right, who are not ready or fitted with the gospel of peace on their feet. And when conflict came their way, not only do they experience those challenges in a really difficult way, but they also bear terrible witness to the God of the gospel. And if you have ever experienced that and you're like not a regular church person or you're not already a Christian person and you've kind of bared the brunt of a Christian person allowing a relationship to be fragmented because when conflict came, they were not readied with the gospel of peace. I am sorry. (laughs) But what would it look like over the next year if your marriage, if your kids in your workplace, if in all of those environments that you were readied with the gospel of peace, if your feet were fitted to walk through this next year with the gospel of peace so that your gentleness and the grace of God might be evident to all. Imagine a church where peacemaking was the norm. (laughs) Imagine the testimony of a church that was filled with wives who excitedly shared about the gentle spirit their husbands worked through conflict with, financial, relational, emotional, Imagine a community where conflict wasn't brushed or pushed aside, but where it was actually dealt with (laughs) in healthy ways because we knew that the person who was letting us know about conflict had a gentle spirit, and it was also received with a gentle spirit. Imagine a place where parents worked patiently (laughs) to guide their children who have it all figured out through challenging seasons of life, and never gave up. Who never tossed in the towel. Imagine people of faith. Not seeking to point out all of the mistakes of the world around them. Pointing out all of the errors of the world around them. But instead worked tirelessly. Prayed tirelessly. For the world's hurts and brokenness. Is this a church that you want to be a part of? This is a community of people, this is the type of church that I guarantee you the world wants to be a part of. And so would you fit your feet with the readiness of the gospel? Father God, we're so grateful for the gospel. <laughs> we're so grateful for the good news that although the world is broken around us, that you have empowered that you have found a way to bring wholeness, to bring peace into the world. And Lord, I, I pray just over our church, especially as we get into this next school year, God, that you would prove yourself to be faithful, that your word would be proved to be true, that as we rejoice and as we pray, that we would be fitted with the readiness of the gospel, that we would be people who were seeking peace That our relationships and our families and our marriages and our workplaces and our schools and our city, God, would be made whole and complete because they're peacemaking, proactive peacemaking people in the world. God, would you prove your gospel to be true through the witness and lives of your people, for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray.